welcome to the Restoration Podcast, where we share sermons and discussions and talk about making disciples of all nations. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, if it's okay, I, um, I'd like to take a little bit more time and pray. Um, Jesus, it is good. We are in your presence this morning, and... It is a wonderful thing to stand here with uh, so many believers and hear everyone lifting your name up. Um, It's exciting for me to hear theologically sound words uh, being sung in unison. Uh, There is a boldness and a hope that comes in us individually trusting in you. But something is compounded when we come together and remember your greatness Uh, as one body. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that opportunity today. Um, As we're just abiding in your presence, Lord, I don't want to leave it. So would you continue uh, to to stay here with us uh, as the word is taught and as it's discussed and as we break bread together in communion, uh, Lord, be with us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, So we're going to be in Ephesians 2 today. Um, We're going to start in chapter 2 to be a little bit creative. Um, Normally we would start in 1. But in in Ephesians, I want to give you a little bit of background as we start this series of Ephesians. A lot of times uh, we don't understand the context in which a book is written. Uh, So something you should know, it's in Acts chapter 19, Paul comes upon some Christians in Ephesus, which was a pretty major city. Uh, And interestingly enough, Paul stays there for about three years ministering. Uh, And in chapter 20, he gives this wonderful address saying, hey, watch out. Wolves are going to come along after I'm gone. They're going to twist words and deceive, and it's going to cause damage to the sheep. So be watchful. He's giving this address to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And then he cries these tears as he says goodbye because he says, I know I'm not going to see you again in in this world, because I'm going to prison, I'm going to be killed, we know what's going to happen. Uh, so keep in mind, that context is what Paul is writing in. He has spent, by the way, three years for Paul was a really long time. Typically, Paul would be in ministry somewhere sometimes for as little as three weeks or three months. Three years is a long time. Paul clearly loved the church at Ephesus. Uh, he poured a lot of his ministry life into them, and he was heartbroken to leave. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul ends up in prison, and it gives him the opportunity to write. And so Paul writes several different letters, including what we call the the prison epistles, epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Uh, So this is one of them that he's writing. Um, Try to put yourself in the mindset of the church at Ephesus. Paul's hanging out with you for three years. He says he would minister in public and also from house to house. So it was not uncommon for Paul to just kind of drop in on one of the house church meetings and say, hey, how's it going? Let me teach you a little bit. They did not have the New Testament as we have it now. Uh, Ephesians had not been written yet. And so even a lot of the teaching was this oral discipleship that Paul is giving. Uh, Reading an excellent book right now uh, called, or 
organic church that I highly recommend. Thanks for the lend, Louis. Um, and he addresses this issue of discipleship on how it seems that in all of the New Testament, uh, we see modeled with Jesus and we see in the various other epistles that there seems to be very simple discipleship tools that are implemented. One of the first things that they teach is newness in Christ. We see this in Peter's writings and in Paul's writings and in Jesus' teachings. We can talk another time about the rest of them. But what Paul seems to do is now that he is in prison, he's writing this letter to this church that he loves very dearly. And he is putting in text the things that he has taught them over the years before. These are not new things necessarily. These are things that he is putting into text. Cool? In Ephesians is particularly interesting because the first half of Ephesians is very theological. It's like the book of Romans. If you need to do a systematic theology study, study the book of Romans. But the first half of Ephesians kind of covers that base. Uh, the last half of Ephesians is, is, is on Christian living and operation of the church. Making sense? So we've set the stage. Are you guys ready? All right. So in Ephesians 1, I'm just going to kind of cruise through it a little bit. In Ephesians 1, he begins by talking about how Jesus is the head of the church. He talks about how salvation is in Christ. It's a big deal. and There's lots of celebration. He doesn't just give you theology. He's like, this is awesome, you guys. Jesus has saved us. God has predestined us to know him. We have adoption through Jesus Christ, and it's all about God's work in salvation and what good news it is. Then he talks about, he's like, hey, guess what? Jesus has been given dominion over everything in this world and in the next, and essentially saying Jesus is king now and in eternity, and that's great news. He has dominion over everything. And then he flows into the last part of chapter 1, and he says, and he has been made head over the church, which is his body. Many people will say that the theme of the book of Ephesians is the headship of Jesus. I think it's really hard to nail down one theme, but if there is one, it probably is that, that Jesus is the head of the church his body. And you will notice as our church continues to grow in health, uh, we don't intend to have lots of hierarchy. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Pretty much there's Jesus who is head. There is a value in overseers, as we'll see later in the book of Ephesians. Um, but those overseers are co-equals. Um, they, they serve together and Jesus is head. I actually had a had a discussion with a pastor friend where he says, well, I'm head of this church. And I'm like, no, you're not. Jesus is head of the church. You are not. You're supposed to have co-equal elders who keep you in check and who you all, all hear from the Lord together. More on that another time. But all of this is setting up this context in Ephesians that everything is about God's glory through salvation in Christ. That is the theme you will see carried through the book of Ephesians. So now that we've kind of set the stage, we're going to get into the like meat of Ephesians 2. You ready? All right, here we go. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. True Lord Jesus, uh, I, I always find myself unable to fully express the greatness of new life in you. When I speak to people who don't know you yet, there is no rationality, there is no amount of emotion, no words that I can use to fully express what it means that my spirit has been made alive and I now abide in you. And God, even when I talk to other believers, there's just not words enough for the greatness So, Lord, I ask that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would move today to illuminate the Word of God to us, to convict us where we are off base on our theology or in our practice, and then may we know you better and glorify you in our obedience to you. May we walk closer to you today uh, as we hear your Word. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to draw attention here to verse 1, where Paul talks about us being dead in trespasses and sins. Now, a quick side note. If you haven't noticed, like, Paul's using some pretty bright language here. He's talking about how amazing it is that we have this new life in Christ, and he he talks about showing the immeasurable riches of God's grace. This This is huge, happy, glorious language, right? This is big news. But this is, keeping in mind, something that Paul had been teaching for three years. It wasn't like Paul was like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you about new life in Christ. That was the thing that they had heard for a long time. He had three years of talking about salvation in Christ and newness of life. This is not something new and fresh to them. This is Paul reminding them of the one thing that really, really matters. Uh, So keeping that in mind, this is not like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we didn't know this before. He talked to them about this for like three years. Right, And so what he's arguably giving, and this is a little side note that I think is interesting, some scholars say that what Paul is doing with the book of Ephesians is essentially giving a church planting handbook that gives you all the theology and practice you need so that, and he writes it to the saints, not just to the elders. His sermon in, in Acts 20 was to the elders of the church, but this is to everybody in the church. And essentially saying, go, you can do this. You've got everything you need, Go. Cool. Anyway, so this is not shocking, but he is addressing this kind of concept that we're born spiritually dead. And I would say that it's something that theologically um, not all of us have a clear understanding of, but Paul is drawing this example of this stark contrast between life in Christ and life without Christ. And that's why he says this whole, and you were born and you're dead in your trespasses and sins. He describes what that's like. He says, we were following the course of this world, uh, which is interesting. Uh, I, I'm not trying to always get zombie illustrations in my sermons. I don't have to try that hard. They just come naturally. But if you've ever watched Walking Dead uh, or read the comic book, and the zombies, they're dead, right? But they can move. Have you noticed how the zombies often move in like a herd? They talk about like a herd coming of zombies because they just kind of stagger around. They have very little emotion or will. They're just kind of driven by the desire to eat flesh, right? Um, and they move in this herd. So it is when we are spiritually dead, we kind of follow in the tide of the world. Uh, When you ask a person what drives them, typically they describe very selfish fleshly things until 
they have met Jesus. We'll talk more about that. He says that we're following Satan. He uses language of selfish desires and being by nature children of, of wrath. This is a very dark picture drawn of what it means to be spiritually dead. But I would say that to understand this fully, we need to kind of get some theology on, on what we call the three parts of a person. And I'm going to set the stage right away and say there is debate uh, as to humanity and what makes up a person. Um, even in Christianity, some say, well, there's a body and there's a spirit. Some say there's a body, soul, and spirit. There's different times where different language is used. Uh, I would say that you can break it apart several different ways, but based on 1 Thessalonians 5, I'm going to go scripturally with this concept of humanity being made up in three parts. Follow along with me, because in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself make you completely holy. He's talking about holiness in its, in its completion. And he says, May your spirit and soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul uses these three words to describe humanity in holiness. Now, Please understand there's arguments that can be made that makes this more complex or less complex. We're using Paul's language here. Um, our, you could make the argument that like, well, what if we divide the mind and the emotions into two separate things? And I'm like, well, I think you can, but I think that all fits together as the soul. So just, you guys with me so far? We're going to describe this in detail. So going on this theory that I believe is biblical, uh, we can describe the body as one part of a person. In Platonism and in Gnosticism, uh, there was often an idea that the body was not that important, right? Or that it was even evil. But God created your body. Your flesh and bone is part of what allows you to reflect the image of God. It is important. It is not wicked. We talk about flesh. We talk about fleshly desires. But when we talk about flesh, we're normally talking about human nature. Your physical flesh is not inherently sinful other than that it is fallen. One day God will redeem it. So your body is a part of you. And typically when we're describing it, we're describing the five senses and you interact with the world physically through taste, feel, smell, sound, and all those kind of things. That's the body, right? The soul is the mental and emotional part of a person. It's the seat of your emotions, your passions, your desires, imagination, reason, conscience, etc. Many times people will think that that is the spiritual part of you. The soul is not necessarily the spiritual part of you. It's connected, but it's not because the soul can be alive when the spirit is dead. And the soul can have really bad fleshly desires. Because before my spirit is made whole, I can want to sin. I can have passion for sin. And until God has made me whole, I am going to be bent towards sin. But the spirit, the spirit is something unique. And in the spirit, it has chief actions of things like faith and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And you might notice that when we try to describe things of the spirit, it's very difficult at times because it's something very different than what anybody who is not spiritually alive knows of. But man, when your spirit comes alive, you know. All of a sudden, you have a hunger for the things of God. You have a desire to know Him. You, you understand biblical things. 
Um, we'll talk more about this in a second. But if I'm going to kind of draw this little dichotomy here, um, in like my little chart, I'm, I'm pretty proud of my chart. I tried to do it much more complex, but I just use blocks. Um, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, The unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What he's saying is, because your spirit is not alive when you are an unbeliever, you will not understand the things of the Spirit. I have experienced this in ministering to people. Uh, we used to do the Alpha course, which, by the way, I highly recommend. It's a great course. And I have a friend who's sitting down at the table with me, and I'm describing the concept of the Trinity with him. And he thinks that's the craziest thing ever, the idea that God is one but is three persons, and he's like, you just, this is nuts. Um, a couple of months later, this guy goes into some problems, has a crisis, meets Jesus, trusts Jesus, his spirit is made new, and I'm then in a relationship of discipleship with him, and I'm taking him through key doctrines of the faith. I get to the Trinity, and I'm like, oh, here we go, and I start describing the Trinity. He stops me, and he's like, dude, this is totally cool. Makes sense to me. I mean, I don't understand all the details of it, but I follow you. And I'm like, ha-ha. Um, the things of the Spirit are not knowable to the person who is spiritually dead. But man, when your spirit comes alive, something changes. It's huge. We're going to go on a little bit. But if you can imagine, the person who is spiritually dead can't respond to God right away. It takes a work of God to draw them in order for them to believe. Uh, this is why, and think about it, if all I have is my body and my soul, that is the, the emotional and reasoning part of me and physicality, but I don't have the spirit, well, I'm not going to understand and believe the things of God. And I have been in many conversations where I am rationally communicating the reality of faith in Christ. I can give historical evidence for the resurrection. I can give lots of logical reasons to believe in God. And it's very interesting, very intelligent, brilliant men will blank out. And they'll just be like, I don't understand. And they just kind of jump out. Or, or I've also had times where we're reading scripture with a, with a lost person. He thought he was saved and he wasn't. And we're trying to read through. And I'm reading to say like, hey, listen, man, you're still walking in death. And I'm reading scripture about sin that he's involved in. And for months we're meeting and talking about this particular sin. And we're discussing it and debating it. And I one day was like, handed the Bible to him. And I'm like, dude, tell me what, the, will you read this out loud? And tell me how else to interpret this? Because I'm trying to figure this out with you. Because if I could just draw a check and say, no problem, don't worry about that sin, I would, but this is what it says. And I kid you not, we've been talking about it for months, he reads the words off the page, and actually it was really interesting because it was like he couldn't see them at first. And I had to like put my fingers, and I'm like, this right here. And he finally reads it, and then mind you, three months of talking about this, and he says, wow, I've never seen or heard that before. The things of the Spirit just don't come through for the person who's spiritually dead. God has to do a work. And this is why, while rational explanation of the faith and, and clear appeals and love are so important, they're vital, they really are. But ultimately, God has to do a work. With me? Please, by the way, don't read into in too much into any type of theological framework, uh, be it Calvinist or Arminian or anything else. Uh, I don't really like, I don't find myself fitting into any of those perfectly well. I'm just going to try to teach the Word of God here. And let him reveal himself. So let's imagine then, 
what it is like when the Spirit is made alive. Because in Ephesians 2, 4, as we've been reading, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. At that moment when you trust Jesus, we have this thing called regeneration. When God makes us alive. I wish that I had some really great formula that I could say, well, if you share your faith in this way, this way, and this way, and you give this evidence or this emotional appeal, they'll believe. But that's just not how it works. God has to do a work of revelation in that person. We need to be faithful to witness. We need to be faithful to rationally communicate the truth of God. I, think it's, I don't think we should be checked out rationally. I think we should have logic and all that's good. But Jesus... His Holy Spirit has to do a work. And so in the one part, this should take the pressure completely off of us. And on the other part, it should increase our dependence on God like crazy. Cool? This is huge. Because even in my own, I will tell you right now, even now, my tendency is to think that evangelism and disciple making is about me. I will schedule my life in such a way. I have something like five or six discipleship meetings a week. I, have, I share the gospel probably three or four times a week. Um, maybe we'll say two to three to be conservative and, and guesstimating. Um, I, I know scores of lost people that I am investing in. I spend time weekly with lost friends. I, I labor. I go to parts of our county that cops don't want to go because I bring Jesus there. And I wear myself out to bring the gospel everywhere I can. But none of it matters unless the Holy Spirit shows up. Now, I'm, I'm being faithful in obedience. I hope you are too, right? But I can't save anybody. I have really great logical defenses for the faith. I, I usually win in debates. My atheist friends just kind of are like, huh, I, I really don't have an answer for you on that. And, but they don't get saved. It has to be Jesus. So keep in mind, chapter 1 of Ephesians talks about how Jesus is head, how he is the agent in salvation. Here, chapter 2, he's talking about newness of life. And all of the theme is coming back to he is the one doing the work. He's the one who made you alive. He's the one that when you are in him, everything changed. You have adoption. You have an inheritance in Christ. You have an eternal destiny that has changed. You have newness of life right now. It's all about him. So let's read this passage a little bit more. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. And he side notes and says, By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He, drives, he describes some very interesting things here when he talks about being made alive in Christ. He says that God was driven by mercy and great love for us. There's an interesting contrast because it talks about when it talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were driven by selfish desires. It's contrasted by God's drive for us, and it's for mercy and great love. So we before acted in our selfishness. God is acting enough mercy and great love to come and get us. Paul's drawing a very beautiful contrast here. He's actually a wonderful writer. Um, he saved us by grace. And then it says, he raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. That's incredible language to draw a contrast between the old life and the new. Cool? And the whole point of all of this was to bring glory to God. That your life is made new, not just so that you can enjoy it, although it's great. 
but because God deserves glory. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's interesting. Verse 7 doesn't say, so that you didn't have to go to hell, although it's a wonderful byproduct. It doesn't say, so that you didn't have to live in guilt, although that's a great byproduct. It says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saved you so that you could see how great and rich his kindness and love and grace is. Paul is talking about God's glory when he's talking about your salvation. So, if you want to just kind of look in some of these things, as we're looking at new life in Christ and what it's all about, it seems that it's all about God's glory. We're saved by God's grace through faith. We weren't saved by our works. It's very clear on that, that it was the gift of God, so we can't be prideful about it. Um, I had a conversation, actually, with another unsafe person. He was like, why are Christians so prideful about da-da-da-da-da-da? And I'm like, well... Humility is supposed to be the mark of a follower of Jesus. If there's pride and boasting, uh, I, something's off. I'm not saying that they're not believers, although maybe, um, but something's off. And so we wrote on, and so uh, it even goes on in describing us as God's work of art, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, and that he prepared even those good works he prepared beforehand for us. So he is the agent in salvation, He is the one making us whole. He's the one who paid the debt for us. Even the good works that we do, he prepared them ahead of time for us to do. Can you see this? The attention is all on God and his glory. So, um, this, this makes things kind of huge. I am consistently seeking the presence of the Lord in the work of making disciples. And I, I think, hopefully, I admonish you enough on that. Hopefully, uh, in house church, we're admonishing one another. In fact, it is kind of thrilling to me that um, a couple of weeks ago, and actually on a consistent basis, we'll, we'll go around the room and we'll talk about who, you know, we're investing in people and we're evangelizing. And it's like 90% of our church is actively evangelizing. I've never been in a church with that kind of percentage rate of people that were actively seeking to make disciples. It's huge. But my message today is that we would understand first that God is the one doing all of this and that the new life that we walk in is wonderful, it's incredible, and it's all to his glory. Enjoy it. He is the one doing the work of salvation. He is the one making your life new. He is the one who has made your life new. And so all of this should be coming back to his glory. Cool? So I want to take some time and discuss this a little bit today um, because I think that's like the most important thing that we do um, other than maybe worship. I, actually, I can't draw lines. It's all pretty awesome. Uh, so let's take some time at our tables. Um, and would you maybe take some time to describe how, you know, I'm going to, here I'll just read the questions. How would you describe what it is to be spiritually alive? Describe your new life in Christ since you trusted Jesus. Could you just kind of say, okay, this is what my life was like before Christ, This is what it is now. I think it's difficult to describe what it means to be spiritually alive to someone who is not spiritually alive. But something changes. Could you describe it as best you can with the people at your table? Um, I think some people have these wonderful, like, wow, you know, light came from heaven and craziness. And and some people are like, wow, something was different. I trusted Jesus. 
and my desires changed and, and everything was different. And it wasn't tingly, woo, it was just like, yeah, but everything changes. The, the paradigm of my life is different now. So would you take some time to describe that? Um, and then maybe if somebody wants to look at John 6.44, Acts 1.8, and Acts 17.11 in relation to our topic today, um, and then what would you say is the most important thing in evangelism? What is, what is the key ingredient every time for salvation, for leading someone to the Lord? Cool? Um, and then last thing, if we want to discuss, uh, if I've been made alive and I'm no longer dead in sin, what should my new life be about? What, what should a life that is new, what does new life in Christ look like on a really practical day-to-day level? Cool? You guys with me? All right. Let's do this. Lord Jesus, um, I am asking that you would add your work, whatever it is, to the discussion we have today. Um, that you would somehow, like Tetris pieces, shift in the truth of your word into the areas of our lives, uh, that it would all fit together in our spirits, our souls, and our bodies, that we would understand you better and live differently. Jesus, we do not want to be the type of church that knows things well and does nothing about it. We don't want to be forgetful hearers of the word. So, Lord Jesus, would you give us a paradigmatic understanding of new life in you, a celebration of it that makes us want others to have it too. And then would we obey you but depend on you completely for the work that draws them to you. Um, Anoint the discussion that we have together. May the gifts be in operation, and may you be glorified even in that. In Christ's name, amen.